Uh, good afternoon. Um, I'm Aparna Pandey, Director of the India Initiative at Hudson Institute. Welcome to all of you in the audience and those who are watching the event online. We are gathered here to discuss India-US relations just, let's say, a couple of hours after the historic 2 plus 2 summit in Delhi. In her opening remarks, India's External Affairs Minister, Shushma Swaraj, noted the growing maturity of the strategic partnership, greater synergies in our engagement in defense and economic arenas. And she referred to the India-US relationship as a partnership based on shared democratic values, growing convergence of interests, and robust people-to-people -people linkages. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spoke of the shared values, emphasized the need for a free and open Indo-Pacific, and stated that the United States understood Indian concerns about the threats to stability that exist in the region, and the U.S. seeks to ensure that both of our peoples can live in peace and in freedom. In his remarks, Secretary of Defense um, Jim Mattis actually mentioned Prime Minister Nehru's 1950 voyage of discovery of the mind and heart of America and referred to his and Secretary Pompeo's trip as promoting the same spirit that Prime Minister Nehru carried to Washington, D.C. 70 years ago. In 2010, President Obama referred to the India-U.S. relationship as the defining partnership of the 21st century. Secretary Pompeo reiterated this idea when he said, together our nations can achieve our shared vision of prosperity and security as we build a relationship that, can, that will help shape the 21st century. I'm sure most of us can agree the relationship has not yet reached the point where that description can be applied without qualification. Over the last two decades, close ties between India and the US is something that has survived successive changes in administrations and governments in both countries. India-US bilateral trades in goods and services stands at over $115 billion. India is a major defense partner of the US. The latest national security strategy labels India a critical country. And India is at the core of the current administration's Indo-Pacific strategy. Yet, frictions remain, including how to reduce the US trade deficit, how best to counter China's influence. India has also yet to commit itself to partnering with the US on containing Russia and Iran in the way the US would like it to. To discuss this and more, we have with us an extremely knowledgeable panel. I will introduce each panelist before they speak, uh, and then we'll have an in-panel discussion before I open the floor to questions from the audience. Um, to my immediate left is Dr. Alyssa Ayers, Senior Fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Ayers served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia from 2020 to 2013. And her latest book titled, Our Time Has Come, How India is Making Its Place in the World, was published by OUP uh, in 2018. Alyssa. Thank you. Thank you for that generous introduction and for plugging my book. Always happy to hear that. Very <laughs> kind. Um, so you have given me the responsibility of making some comments about the India-U.S. trade and economic relationship. And I think uh, for folks who are here in the audience, most of whom probably followed today's 2 plus 2 meeting in some detail, 
that was a big piece that really wasn't part of today's meetings. So I thought what I would do is provide a little bit of a backdrop, uh, and then I think we can plug back in to the trade piece where it will come up. Because I think in the context of where we are today, the trade piece of the relationship is the aspect that has many frictions. Uh, this is something that is not new. We've had a lot of trade frictions between the United States over the years. In fact, if you're a trade negotiator, you've probably got a long laundry list of things you've trying, you've been trying to uh, accomplish advances on for well more than a decade. And that's really the way a lot of trade relationships are. Uh, so this shouldn't be a surprise. But one of the things that's happened, I'd say over the course really of the past eight months, has been the attention that the Trump administration has brought to trade and economic issues as a measurement of the health of a bilateral relationship. And so what you've seen happening is, in addition to the long list of frictions that we have, of course, there are a variety of different sectors in which any United States government official would like to see India open its market further to allow American companies to invest further or to lower tariffs or to have an easier time doing business in the country. Uh, we are now also seeing a, a couple additional layers of challenges in the backdrop of the economic relationship. That includes things like attention to bilateral deficits as a challenge. Uh, the United States never used to use a measurement of bilateral trade deficits as something to uh, confront other countries with, as something to look to seek balance and reciprocity on. We always had focused on issues like access to the market. But the Trump administration has been very focused on this idea of bilateral trade deficits. And India, of course, ranks up there as, I think, number 10, with a $26 billion uh, trade deficit with the United States. Uh, so that's been an issue. And I think in part of our ongoing uh, uh, diplomatic conversations, administration officials are asking their counterparts in India to find solutions, find ways to bring down that trade deficit. You hear from Indian officials things like, we're going to grow our way out of this. You'll see our economy is picking up speed uh, with its economic growth. We will be continuing to procure more oil and gas from the United States. We have a rapidly growing civil aviation sector, uh, acquisition of new aircraft, You know, very expensive, very large, bumpy procurements. Uh, that will also help bring down the trade deficit. So this is uh, the response from the Indian side saying, this problem is going to naturally take care of it itself. But you do see uh, attention and energy on the Trump administration's side to seeking a, a more immediate uh, action on finding ways to eliminate that trade deficit. And as I mentioned, this is not an area that really ever had been on the list of challenges in the economic relationship. Let me add another thing. Uh, earlier this year, the Trump administration decided to implement uh, a series of tariffs uh, on tr steel and aluminum. And this these are called 232 tariffs under the uh, provision of uh, US trade law that allows for national security uh, exceptions on trade. And so it turns out that this caught India in the net. This was actually uh, a tariff imposition that was designed to target uh, uh, steel and aluminum imports from China. And of course, uh, India falls in this catchment. And this has now created yet another uh, line of tension in the US-India economic relationship, because it came out of nowhere, frankly, for India. Again, it was not ever on anybody's list of issues uh, to pursue with our, our trade and investment relationship with India. Um, the Indian government has put together a list uh, of goods that they would impose reciprocal tariffs on. They have decided to uh, withhold, hold those reciprocal tariffs at bay for the time being, um, hoping to work out some sort of a compromise with the United States. And so this is an issue that hangs in the background. 
We've got some economic issues of sanctions that I'll leave to the side for now, because I think those are probably better discussed in the context of security. Uh, but there is kind of in the background of the economic relationship the question of whether the United States might decide to uh, implement sanctions on India um, uh, for uh, procuring a defense platform from Russia and or from its uh, procurement of oil from Iran. Perhaps we can talk about that at length separately. So this was the context in which uh, India and the United States have now moved into convening this first two plus two dialogue. Um, let me say, when I served in the Obama administration, uh, I served during the years when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and one of the things that she did was create the strategic dialogue with India. At the time, we did not have a cabinet-level annual dialogue with India. We had a number of very strong, ongoing, undersecretary-level-led dialogues, but it was Secretary Clinton who created the idea of a standing dialogue. She called it the strategic dialogue. We saw that as this evolved over the years, it became something called a strategic and commercial dialogue. And it, that meant that it was, at the time, uh, 2015 and 2016, co-chaired on the US side by the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Commerce, and in India by the External Affairs Minister and the Minister of Commerce and Industry. So we had several years of a very strong strategic dialogue that had a heavy, heavy economic component to it. We were discussing earlier, right before we all came out here, there was another dimension of that economic conversation that was part of these strategic dialogues. If you look back at the past joint statements from all of them, you'll see that questions of the environment and climate change was also a big piece of what came up under the rubric of the annual cabinet level meeting. Uh, I am no longer sure where that falls in our dialogue, in our formal dialogue with India. In the security session that took place today, I didn't see anything that seemed to be focused on climate change or climate security or environmental issues. We do know that there will be an upcoming trade policy forum taking place in November between India and the United States. Uh, I am not aware that the climate environment set of issues falls under that basket. That is typically, you know, trade negotiators going very, very technical uh, on tariffs and foreign direct investment issues. So this does raise the question I'd like to put out for all of us to think about it. How do we continue to sustain a very high-level dialogue on important issues of the environment and climate at a time where we maybe no longer have that as a pillar of what we see as an important annual conversation? So that's the backdrop. Uh, thank thank you. Take up other issues later. Thank you. Um, to my to my uh, right uh, is uh, Kara Abercrombie, a visiting scholar with Carnegie South Asia Program uh, on temporary assignment from the Office of Secretary of Defense. Uh, she focuses on US security interests in Asia, particularly opportunities for greater US-India defense cooperation. Carol. Thank you. And so I must say that, uh, the views I'm uh, representing today are my own. They do not represent those of the US government or the Department of Defense. Um, so look, for defense watchers, um, watching the US-India defense relationship for many years today was extremely positive and extremely significant in a number of ways. Um, you saw a number of announcements of some tactical areas of cooperation, but really from sort of pulling back at this from the strategic perspective, I believe this demonstrates a pretty dramatic shift, uh, a statement of positive confirmation from both sides that the cooperation, the foundation we've been building all these many years has is irreversible. I feel like we've sort of taken a step forward where you're going to see greater alignment between the United States and India in the defense space that should be unchallenged. Uh, and the defense relationship to the 
point Alyssa made earlier, has frankly been the ballast for the overall strategic partnership for many years. It's been the area that's been easiest to operate in. But I would say that that is true even more so today. And we actually heard uh, Defense Minister Sitaraman making that remark um, in the closing statements today. Um, but another, you know, I picked up on a, a few phrases the Defense Minister and Secretary Mattis made in their closing remarks that I think signify a shift. You heard Secretary Mattis refer to this as a partnership of two co-equals. You have the American Defense Secretary calling out one of the biggest issues for India um, in, in terms of its concerns for partnering more closely with the United States, which is India doesn't want to be a junior partner. It wants to be an equal. And you have the American Defense Secretary saying, we are co-equals. You also then had the defense minister quoting Prime Minister Modi's remarks to the joint session of Congress in 2016, where he said, we have overcome the hesitations of history. So the hesitations being a lot of concern and distrust about US reliability over the years. And so I do see this as sort of a big, I don't want to say quick leap forward, a large step in the right direction. Um, it's a clear signal that India in this government and frankly, I think the larger strategic community is increasingly comfortable with an India that's partnering with the United States. Um, and this, this dialogue, uh, building on the evolution that Alyssa mentioned, is significant for defense relations for another reason. In the United States, we're very accustomed to the Defense Department being almost an equal partner with the State Department at the national security, in, in the national security apparatus. It's a large department, has a huge budget, has an outsized voice in terms of national security decision making. The same is not true for our counterpart in India. The defense ministry is very much the junior partner to the Ministry of External Affairs. And so when you have those two ministers at the table together making these strategic decisions, you are able to clear the way for defense cooperation in a way that was not possible before. You now have the Minister of External Affairs green lighting cooperation that basically directs the entire defense bureaucracy to move forward, which is, um, from the US standpoint, a very positive thing. So let's talk about what was agreed to today. There's a lot, a lot. Uh, and a lot of it seemed tactical, but again, it has strategic value. Uh, I think the unsung, the unsung hero of the day is interoperability. It's a word that the Americans like to use a lot, the Indians less so. Um, but the agreements that they reached today signal an effort by both sides to make the, their armed forces more interoperable. Uh, signing this CAMCASA, this Communications Compatibility and Security Agreement, which is a mouthful, which is basically a document the United States requires for assurances that if we provide our secure communications technology, it's assurances that it will be used and protected in the way that the United States requires. In signing that, um, we've now opened the door for the US to share its most sophisticated and sensitive communications technology with India, which means communication systems will be interoperable. Uh, in agreeing to a new military exercise, a tri-service exercise, Army, Navy, Air Force, that is going to make our forces more interoperable. It means we will now be exercising <coughs> the way we operate in the United States as a joint force. We don't just have individual services doing things typically by themselves. So that's a step in the right direction. Um, there were references in the final joint statement to maritime domain awareness and uh, maritime security cooperation. That's also a step in the right direction for maritime um, interoperability. And finally, uh, confirmed what has been rumored for a long time that India will have liaisons working with um, NAVSENT, the Central Command's naval headquarters, uh, which is a hugely significant development in the relationship. Um, Again, uh, study India watchers will know the United States, when we organized the world in combatant commands, we've placed India firmly in 
the command that looks to India's east. We've never really worked with military to military to India's west, which, if you read the Indian naval strategy, is India's primary theater of interest. So now we'll be talking together. Um, you know, a lot of speculation, uh, there's always speculation in the press about US defense sales to India and where that's going. Um, I think there was no specific mention of future trade deals, um, nor was there, I did not expect that to occur. But what you've seen now, again, with these signing of a Kamkasa, um, with a pledge to agree to um, international security agreement uh, to negotiate that, which will basically the, the terms under which private sector firms will protect US technology. Um, reaffirming India's status as a major defense partner, uh, reaffirming that the United States has accorded India STA-1 status under the US Department of Commerce, which means fewer licenses are required. All of this is going to facilitate defense trade. So what you also saw today was basically a commitment in agreeing to do these things, there will be more trade and there will be more technology cooperation. We saw um, a reiteration of support for the Defense uh, Trade and Technology Initiative, which is an effort by both governments to really co-produce and co-develop technology for the armed forces. Uh, they agreed to sign an MOU be between uh, the DOD's very innovative Defense Innovation Unit out in Silicon Valley and India's equivalent to try to get the armed forces working together on with private sector on cutting edge technologies and uh, adopt, uh, excuse me, um, adopting those to a defense purpose. Um, and of course, agreements, again, uh, to collaborate and support one another uh, in terms of Afghanistan approaches to Afghanistan. Counterterrorism, by all accounts, counterterrorism cooperation has really taken off in the past year in ways that it hadn't before. Um, and uh, potentially a new hotline between uh, the defense minister and the secretary of defense. Um, that's more of a hotline. They talk. They can talk whenever they want to. Everybody has a telephone. We're able to make those connections. The significance of a hotline is it means now they can speak securely quickly if they need to. And that's a helpful thing. Um, so you know, again, for those of us who've been watching this relationship for a long time, it's taken baby steps. Um, and the fact that we've now crossed the line on some of these issues that, again, seem perhaps small scale, I think, uh, has greater strategic significance in terms of the overall trajectory for the relationship. Thank you, Kara. Um, to my extreme right is Jeff Smith, a research fellow in Heritage Asian Studies Center focusing on South Asia. He formerly served as director of Asian security programs at American Foreign Policy Council, and he's the author of Cold Peace, Sino-Indian Rivalry in the 21st Century. Thank you, Aparna, um, and, and Kara for your great overview of the Concasa Agreement. She stole some of my thunder, but did a very comprehensive overview. And I, I echo her sentiment that this was a significant accomplishment. In fact, I think there was two significant accomplishments, the Comcasa and the 2 plus 2. The fact that we have now had really the first true 2 plus 2 ministerial dialogue with India. Uh, India started uh, vice minister level 2 plus 2 with Japan in 2010. Last year, it had a 2 plus 2 dialogue with Australia, its first but was not at the level of external affairs minister and uh, defense minister. So this is very significant in a lot of ways. I think both agreements are. The first foundational military agreement took us 15 years to negotiate, uh, 10 to 15. This one, maybe a few. Maybe the Becca will be a few months to follow. <laughs> but I think the, the pace of progress is quickening, and that's a positive development. Um, one thing that 
was noted at the meeting that I did think was significant, there was a little more emphasis placed on the nuclear suppliers group than I expected. So uh, Secretary Pompeo and the U.S. administration seems to want to um, put some more energy into getting India into the nuclear suppliers group, something that China has opposed in the past and has been kind of a simmering issue. But the fact that it got uh, prominent attention means that I think the U.S. and India are looking to make another push to get India into the nuclear suppliers group, which regu helps regulate uh, international trade in nuclear material. Uh, looking at the bigger picture, U.S.-India bigger picture, a challenge in this media environment, I think, with so much news coming at you so often, is trying to find out how to differentiate between what is cosmetic and attention-grabbing and what is meaningful and substantive, what will impact the geopolitical balance five years from now or 10 years from now, what will be remembered a decade later. And a lot of what we focus on in the headlines does not fall into that category. But I think a lot of the things that the Trump administration has done quietly with India uh, over the past year and a half does fall into that category. There are moves being made that have deeper significance that don't get a lot of attention. Two of the big ones were this week. Um, STA-1 authority, uh, which was mentioned prior, is a big deal, a meaningful big deal that's been on the table for a long time. The revival of the Quad, the US, Japan, Australia, and India, after a 10-year hiatus, uh, first attempt to form a quadrilateral strategic dialogue um, collapsed shortly after it, it began in 2007. By early 2008, it was over. And for the past 10 years or so, I think the US and Japan in particular have been pushing to revive this dialogue. The fact that uh, all four parties agreed to meet again last November and again this April and have now committed to roughly two meetings a year is significant. Um, you know, for a long time, the biggest obstacle or challenge in U.S.-India relations was, was Pakistan. And gradually, over the past decade, I think that's been becoming less and less of a point of contention because we gradually understand each other's positions better. But to this administration's credit, uh, it has taken a much firmer line with Pakistan, something I've been arguing for for, for some time, and in some ways has brought our two countries has removed that obstacle even further. On China, I think there is greater alignment on the challenges, strategic challenges posed by China and on its most important and ambitious geostrategic initiative. When China unveiled the Belt and Road in 2015, 2013, I'm sorry, um, there was only one country in the world that stood against it, that vocally criticized it and opposed it, and that was India. And for the last several years, a lot of other countries have been assessing and evaluating. And beginning last year, the Trump administration, actually after a, a trip to India, Defense Secretary Mattis came back and signaled that the US has very real concerns about the Belt and Road Initiative. There's been a lot more scrutiny applied to that uh, over the past year, not only by the US, but by Australia and, and Europe and others. So in some ways, on Pakistan, on China, on the Belt and Road, the two countries are coming into closer alignment. And some of the obstacles from before, I think, are, are, are diminishing. I think these are important. 
that's not to say everything is great. I'm grateful every week that I don't work on the econ portfolio because <laughs> that is a far more contentious arena. Um, I, I don't like the the high-level turnover in the administration or the failure to uh, nominate an assistant secretary of state for South Asia. I don't like the fact that there's some uncertainty in India about this administration's ultimate objectives and intentions, although I think some of the progress I've cited has demonstrated that this administration is committed to advancing um, strategic cooperation. I am glad that the NDAA included additional waiver authority for CATSA sanctions, but I do, I, I do remain concerned uh, about two potential sets of sanctions that could uh, interrupt bilateral relations related to CATSA and, and Russian arms imports and related to Iran and Iranian oil imports. Uh, we've been in this strange dance on CATSA where the, the president does have the authority to waive sanctions on a country like India he hasn't committed to doing so. We've kind of said, you know, we, we, we don't want you to buy the Russian hardware systems, but we don't know if we'd sanction you. And the Indians have kind of said, well, we don't want you to sanction us, but we don't know if we're definitely going to buy the Russian hardware systems. And all three outcomes are still possible. India could buy S-400 missiles and not be sanctioned. It could buy them and be sanctioned, or it could not buy them at all. And that's, uh, that creates some uncertainty. So the fact that India is, is decreasing its oil imports from Iran and significantly increasing oil imports from the US is a good sign. Um, but I, there's still some uncertainty that remains, and those issues will have to be tended to uh, with sensitivity and care. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and to, last but not least, to my extreme le left is Kapil Sharma, currently serves as Vice President for Government Public Affairs, North America for Wipro. Thank you, Aparna, and uh, thank you to the Hudson Institute for inviting me to participate on this panel. Uh, and being fourth on this panel is probably the easiest job because you guys have covered all the great issues. And uh, even better, you know, Jeff, the way you just described uh, what you don't and don't like and the confusion there <laughs> made me think of a reality TV show, which maybe the McLarty Group could produce <laughs> and the McLarty Media. Uh, you know, I, I work on trade and economic issues, and uh, being a corporate in this relationship, it does have its ups and downs. Uh, I used to have hair like you, Jeff, not anymore, uh, since uh, I've been working on the Indian corporate side. Uh, but in order to really fully appreciate, I think, what the corporates are going through and how we look at this trade relationship, uh, Alyssa did take a lot of my TPs. I, I spent a lot of time typing this up, Alyssa, just <laughs> why I. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of interesting points I think that we should discuss and talk about. Because in the 2 plus 2 dialogue, they did reference trade and the importance of trade and economics and security for both countries. And they did talk about high-skilled visas. Um, and so, but more or less, trade and economic issues are left out. But these dialogues are important to the corporates. You know, I've been working on the U.S.-India relationship since the 1990s when I was working on Capitol Hill. And back then, we really didn't talk much about trade. We didn't talk much about defense. Everything that we're talking about today was not existent in the 1990s. I mean, these three people here have had a lot to do with where we are today by getting us to that point. But when I started, we didn't talk about it. And this relationship, I would argue with anybody, bilateral relationship is the fastest growing and most dynamic relationship the United States has. Uh, and a lot of it is because of the potential. Uh, and 
even though trade and economics is a stressful issue, I think a lot of that growth has happened around those particular issues. And as Aparna mentioned, you know, trade is now at 115 billion. And, and I just want to highlight one thing that a lot of people don't know and appreciate that, yes, it's picked up a lot over the last couple of years, but people don't realize that the first US consulate was in Kolkata in 1792. And, and so it's taken a while to get to that point, but uh, we've made up for it in the last 10 years. And, and as this relationship has grown and, and, and Cara and Alyssa have been working in the government side to get it to that point, a lot of platforms, a lot of forms have been created. I think by the end of the Obama administration, there were 30 dialogues and platforms discussing a variety of issues. I think we're now down to two, maybe, I don't know. We can't keep up with uh, how many have been axed by the Trump administration. But that kind of shows that there was a need for talk. And what, why is that important? because both sides were willing to talk. Both sides were willing to come to conclusions. And, and yes, those channels worked out what I would argue are low-hanging fruit. Those were a lot of easy issues. Because like I said, in the 1990s, there wasn't much going on. And so when we finally started talking, the two countries started talking, you could pluck those things. Uh, except for the Civ Nuke deal. That was like a, a pineapple on the top of the tree. And we were able to pluck that one down. Um, but things are different today, and there's no question about it. I kind of, uh, if the way I look at the way that uh, corporates are trying to deal with this, it's like the Kardashian family. You know, in an episode of the Kardashians, where the beginning of the episode sounds really good and really nice, and everybody's hugging each other, and then as you go through the episode, people start fighting, and then the commercial break comes, and the commercial, and they're hugging again, and then they're fighting again, and that's how I kind of look at the trade relationship. But why, why do I joke that way? because that is what actually mature governments and mature relationship do. And trust me, in 1998, when India conducted the nuclear test, the governments weren't talking. It wasn't a, there was no episode. And there was a lot of tension, and it took a lot of work for people in this city and in Delhi to get it back to where it is today. And yes, there is tension in the relationship, but why? It's because they're tackling tough issues. And unlike, um, Unlike, I think, defense and security, you know, trade and economic issues are dealing with domestic constituencies. And both the political, political leaderships of both governments are focusing on their domestic interests. They're focusing on deficits. They're focusing on the growth of local economies. And the most important issue is jobs and jobs creation. And they're both talking to each other, and they're looking at how does this relationship grow my local economy, and how does it grow local jobs? That's where the pressure comes on the corporates to figure out. You know, as they were talking about Kamkasa and, the, and, and what happened today, I was generally thinking about, okay, uh, does anybody lose their job from Kamkasa? Does anybody gain a job from Kamkasa? I don't think that really has an impact on local constituencies. But if you negotiate something on H-1Bs or if you negotiate something on poultry or some type of industry, that impacts jobs, that impacts local economies. It gets much harder to figure that out. And you know, look, the, the, the reality is, and this is what the prime minister is dealing in India, as he's thinking about how to negotiate these trade agreements, he's got a growing economy. It's growing at approximately 78% a year. But are the jobs growing with the economy? And uh, I think the challenge for both the president and for the prime minister is, how am I going to grow jobs? Is it OK to just simply say we're growing at 8%, but people don't feel it from a jobs perspective? So 
you know, and, and here's the bigger, bigger question that I have, and I've spoken to a number of people uh, over the last couple of days to prepare for this panel, and I've, I've asked across the board, what is the trade, common trade agenda between the two countries? And uh, uh, I couldn't get one answer other than, well, remember when Biden, Vice President Biden said the $500 billion trade, beyond that, I, it was completely all over the place. That's the challenge that we have right now, is that both sides don't even have a common trade dialogue. So we're at a discussion stalemate. Uh, and USTR was supposed to be in Delhi this week. They canceled that trip because they saw no movement on the Indian side on, on discussing some of the market access issues. Uh, unfortunately, that means that the trade policy forum may be canceled because the USTR, Lighthizer, said that he is not going to go to India unless a trade agreement on these particular issues has been resolved. Uh, and knowing how both sides work, and we're in political season, uh, I have a feeling that there will be no trade policy forum. And, and then we have both countries threatening to issue tariffs, or they have issued tariffs, or threatening to issue tariffs against each other. And like I said, without a common objective, with a common agenda, I don't even know how do each side know that they've won. How do you know you've won a trade agreement or a trade deal? Because that seems to be the attitude of both sides. So uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't see any of these issues being resolved over the next 24 months. But this is where I'm being very optimistic, Jeff, because he, he was like, oh, you're going to end very pessimistically. I'm feeling very optimistic. Because despite of all of this, despite of all of this, I am really happy to see how corporates are continuing to operate and grow. So if you think about the number of US governors, so I, I actually say you have to look outside of the beltway, this bubble that we live in here, it's called Washington DC, and go to state capitals and hear how they talk about that trade relationship and see of the number of governors, US governors coming from the heartland to the south that keep traveling to India to find new ways of creating opportunity for both countries. They're bringing US SMEs with them to India to say, how can we partner? How can we grow? How can we innovate? And the vice versa. You see the Indian delegations trying to do the same thing. And they're not going to New York and California. They're going to Indiana. They're going to Tennessee. They're going to Alabama. They're going to Kentucky. I feel great about that. And the other thing that I'm very proud of, which never gets talked about, and if you all know me, you know that I harp on this a lot, is that Indian FDI in the United States is growing at an unbelievable clip. And what is that doing? It's growing US jobs, it's growing US economy, and it's local economies. And it's happening in manufacturing, it's happening in technology, it's R&D. Uh, you're seeing a very high localized hiring rate by, US, by, uh, by Indian companies in the United States that's bringing more Americans into the globalized workforce for these companies. That is happening still, so despite all of the fighting that might be going on over poultry or boric acid or all these other things, the companies are still trying to find ways to invest. They're still trying to find ways to work together. And that bond is only getting stronger. So despite the, the Kardashian-like agreements that we see, good things are happening. We just don't hear about them. Uh, most of the time, people just want to talk about the bad stuff. But there is a lot of good stuff that's happening. Companies are creating jobs. Um, it, it's amazing, in my own company in Wipro, uh, the number of non-Indians that I'm working with at very high levels talk about innovation, R&D, and other types of challenges. 
uh, both sides, companies in both the United States and India are adding value to each other. This was not the case six, seven, eight years ago. But today, there is real value add that's being created by, both co by companies from both countries. And like I said, they're doing it despite the challenges. So I am very optimistic that in spite of uh, a lot of the conversations or lack of that are going on, um, that this will work out. It's just going to take some time. Thank you, Kapil. And next time, I'll ask you how I sh what I should call my, um, my event. I never thought I'd add the Kardashians to, <laughs> you know, how I describe India-U.S. relationship. Bollywood, Hollywood, Kardashians. Okay. I'm a big fan of Bravo TV, <laughs> I have to admit. Uh, before I throw open the discussion, I'd like to ask, um, I'll use my privilege as moderator to ask each panelist a question. Um, Alyssa, I'll start off with you. Uh, and uh, this is something actually which uh, External Affairs Minister Swaraj mentioned in her uh, closing remarks today and something the two of you two of us have discussed a lot, which is the H-1B visa issue. Uh, Mr. Swaj mentioned that she requested that nothing should be allowed to happen that will be detrimental to our relations, referring specifically to the visa issue. And both of us have received messages on social media. Um, India and the US have popular and nationalist leaders in charge. Will issues like, you know, traditional Indian resistance to opening the market or multinational corporations or uh, American policy towards immigration somehow adversely affect this strategic relationship? That's a really big question. Um, I, there's certainly a sense of disquiet in India uh, about where the Trump administration may be headed on immigration questions, particularly in high-skilled immigration. Uh, this is something that the president has mentioned over time during the campaign as well as in office. There haven't been any big decisions made uh, so far about what will happen with the H-1B visa program. In fact, as I've argued elsewhere, uh, this is not really an issue that the executive branch can just take unilateral action on. And that's why it's a far more complex issue than I think people fully understand and can appreciate in India. I think oftentimes people in India feel, oh, we would like to see more of our highly skilled workers have access to travel and work in the United States, why isn't this easier? Why, why can't this just be changed? And the fact is, we have uh, partisan gridlock in Washington. And Congress is the branch of government that has control over US immigration law. Uh, so to see real change in the way our whole immigration system works, we would actually need to see a new law passed by Congress. The last time people tried to work on this with the Gang of Eight, uh, it actually did not find momentum uh, among other lawmakers, and so nothing ever moved forward. There have been a series of bills that have been introduced uh, in the House, and I believe in the Senate. Again, those haven't moved forward. So we're looking at a situation where you see something that is a source of friction in a bilateral international relationship, but the solution can't be worked out one executive branch to another in a bilateral dialogue. So that creates a real challenge. One of the things uh, I, I wanted to make sure to mention, because we've received a lot of messages about this on social media, is a very specific subsection of this question. Um, during the uh, latter uh, Obama administration term, uh, they took a decision, an executive branch decision, actually, uh, to allow the accompanying spouses of people who were in the United States on an H-1B visa 
to have work authorization. So this is a very specific thing called an H-4 visa. There's been some talk about the possibility of removing that work authorization for people who are here. And that's an issue that causes a lot of people who are already in this country working some grave concern. And so it does seem to me that the compassionate thing to do is at least maintain where we are on this question. Um, but there are definitely a lot of balls in the air here. We haven't seen any decisions. Um, I've heard from many people who work on this issue, uh, including in the corporate space, that there have been quiet uh, uh, internal policy changes, such as asking visa applicants for more evidence in their file that causes very, very long processes of visa review and adjudication. And that can introduce a lot of uncertainty for people who are simply trying to go about their lives. So that's another aspect of where things are becoming uh, more of a source of friction than they had been in the past. Um, but it is, a, to have a, a real solid solution on this question, we really would need, frankly, to have a, a, a comprehensive immigration reform package that deals not only with this, but with questions like, you know, raising the threshold of the, the salary, uh, looking at very, very long wait lists for uh, green cards, uh, very, very long in the case of India, but people can be waiting for 15 years. Uh, so a much larger package uh, of reform would have to be carried forward to actually solve this issue. And unfortunately, I just don't see any, any political momentum on this question at the moment. Thank you. Um, Kara and Jeff, uh, my question is to both of you. And this has to do with something the two of you mentioned. Um, and I'd like to push on that, which is uh, there's a lot of positive in the relationship, but we do have the question about the waiver or not waiver on CAPSA and the Iran sanctions and Chabahar port. So um, could I ask each of you to comment on one? You know, um, is that going, let's say the waiver does not come through or it takes a very long time in coming through and is that going to cause um, how much of an impact is that going to have on this relationship? Um, and where does Shabahar port come in? I've, I've heard some people say that Shabahar may be exempt because, or parts of it may be exempt because it's dealing with, um, you know, supply to Afghanistan and the U.S. concern about Afghanistan may lead to that. But is that true? And if yes, how will that happen? <laughs> I guess that was yeah. it. <laughs> so, Look, given the history of U.S.-India defense relations and relations writ large, the specter of sanctions is unhelpful. It harkens back to a time when the U.S. did sanction India and when relations were at a low point. And so inherently having the threat of sanctions looming over the relationship is problematic, um, which is why uh, Congress providing a waiver was so important. Um, but the fact does remain um, well, I would say there's bipartisan consensus in the legislative and executive branches that these sanctions were meant to, to target Russia, not India. India sort of got caught in the crosshair. So there is no desire to harm the U.S.-India relationship. Um, but there will need to be a decision taken as to whether or not to sanction on what is unquestionably a significant defense purchase, which is what the legislation says will trigger sanctions. And it is certainly something that is being discussed in American circles about other potential purchasers of the S-400 system, including NATO ally Turkey, which further complicates things. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I 
feel fairly confident the US government will not seek to sanction India. Um, that's my personal opinion. Uh, but at the same time, India's purchase of this very sophisticated defense system from Russia is inherently problematic to the deepening of US-India defense ties. And so that needs to be considered on its own merits. You know, it's, it's unhelpful that the threat of sanctions got pulled into the whole discussion over S-400, because that was a worthwhile conversation to have bilaterally, uh, regardless of the Russia equation. Um, if you're looking to do more in terms of interoperability with the United States and have communication systems that can talk to one another, um, you don't want to plug US systems in with Russian systems. And I would say the Russian, you know, and vice versa, the true is true, you know, the reverse is true for Russia as well. And so whereas it's been fine for India to have a diversity of suppliers for all these years, and that is India's sovereign decision to make, it is becoming complicated as India is looking to acquire more sophisticated systems and to partner and, and potentially operate with the United States. Yeah, I'd piggyback off of everything Kara said. Uh, it's just fundamentally unhelpful to have the specter of sanctions loom over the relationship when we've spent the past decade plus trying to convince India that a closer partnership with the US doesn't mean that you have to cede your sovereignty and autonomy. And I think really, for the most part, the US has delivered on that promise and has uh, you know, not been overly overbearing on India on, on what it needs to do geopolitically and has given India a lot of flexibility. This is a sort of unfortunate hiccup in, in that aspect of the relationship. I mean, on one hand, you have to be torn because of another country interferes in your elections flagrantly. There are things that countries like Russia can do that should be punishable by US sanctions policy. You want to do your best to try and avoid um, doing self-harm in those circumstances and hurting one of your own strategic partnerships. I, I think it, it, a positive sign on CATSA is that I think most people in Congress get this. And most people in Congress don't want to see India become ensnared in CATSA sanctions. Frankly, if anything, I'm maybe a little more worried that uh, someone in the executive branch at some point in time could, could be tempted to use this as leverage in other negotiations over economic issues. And I'd rather have that removed entirely. Uh, I would rather have a different type of waiver authority. We threw national security at waivers at, at Pakistan for 10 years like it was candy for nothing. And now we're having uh, you know, tremendous consternation over the idea of giving the, the Pentagon a national security waiver authority for India. Um, the Chabahar issue, I've been in some ways pleasantly surprised that the, the US government has shown more flexibility on that than maybe would have been possible 10 or 15 years ago. I think there's a recognition on the Hill and inside the administration that India's activities at Chabahar are not in any way designed to uh, either hurt US interests or advance aspects of Iran's foreign policy that we find problematic. That there's uh, common ground there in trying to provide alternative supply routes into Afghanistan. Um, and I think this administration has thus far handled that maturely. And if the relationship remains on the positive trajectory we're on right now, I'm pretty confident that we can find ways um, to get around that issue, to find ways to, to not have Chabahar become a significant irritant in bilateral relations. I'm confident that the Hill will eventually move 
to amend the legislation on CATSA if it looks like it's going to become a major contentious issue in bilateral relations. But all of that is a bit contingent on the general trajectory of the relationship remaining positive. Thank you. Um, Kapil, my final question is to you. And you mentioned um, that the positives we can see are in, the, are in how companies are looking at states and the, the relationship and the fact that companies are still enthusiastic about uh, investing in India or Indian companies investing in the U.S. I'd like to push you on that. Secretary Pompeo, in his remarks today, talked about the fact that American companies face trade barriers in India and that American workers' products can't be sold here, and that needs to be changed. What barriers would, I mean, if, if I reverse the question, what barriers do Indian companies see in this country? Um, and, they are, and are there demands that Indian companies would like the U.S. side um, to look at? There, there are barriers for Indian companies here in the United States. I, I think that they're not country specific. I think they are more, you get caught up in uh, the way that the administration or Congress reacts to, let's say, Russia and China. So you're seeing CFIUS reform that's taking place and the review process. Well, Indian companies can get caught up in that uh, because the law is so broad that that worries us. I think that the way that, again, in reaction to Russia and China about lobbying and the ability for Indian corporates to be able to express their opinions to Capitol Hill, there's going to be a tremendous amount of restrictions that are going to be placed. So we get caught up in that kind of stuff. Um, I, you know, One of my big things that I'd like to see better done by the administration is that whenever it applies the enforcement of any rule or law, that uh, it's done equally and fairly, especially around high-skilled visas. Uh, that it, that regardless of where your company is from, that the law is applied equally to everybody. And I think that's all that the Indian corporates really, uh, really, really uh, strive for and, and, and thrive for. That's what, that's what they want. I actually admired uh, Pompeo's uh, Indo-Pacific speech a lot, and I'll tell you why. There's no better feeling if you're a U.S. corporate to sit there and see the Secretary of State say that if you want to have a stronger relationship with the United States, there is no better way of appreciating the values that we bring than through our companies. Our companies are what make this country great. Our companies represent those values and will represent those values in your country. So open up and you will have that stronger relationship in the United States. I do believe that also with Indian companies. I don't think the minister will say that, but I do believe it because I see it. And I see what our companies are doing in communities where US companies have abandoned those communities and Indian companies have come in. And they have actually invested, they have recreated jobs, and they have upskilled American workers that were displaced by US companies. And so I think that we bring those same values. Um, and, I, and I am feeling very good about what we're doing here in the United States. And I do think that if you want to see the strong economic relationship, if you want to see that strong $500 billion number hit and reached, there has to be balance as to how we actually look at that relationship. It's not always about what US companies can do in India, but it can also be what are Indian companies doing here. And if we treat both sides equally on that, on that economic relationship, then we can hit the numbers that we're talking about. But 
for, for as long as we keep talking about what U.S. companies have to do in India and we have to get market access and da da da, and not really appreciate what Indian companies are doing here, I think we're always going to have this uneven view of the relationship. So we need co-equal, as Secretary Mattis said, in this. So we need the co-equal in this part of the relationship as well. <laughs> yeah, and we just need to talk about. It. I know the U.S. is a relatively open country. And so it's easy to do business here, and Indian companies have thrived and they've done well. Uh, there are, you know, concerns now about us versus them and supporting American jobs, and it's U.S. corporates doing that. But Indian corporates are doing that as well. We just need to talk about it a little bit more. Thank you. I'll now open up questions. Question to the audience: Please wait for the mic to come to you, and then identify yourself, and then ask the question. Um, Uh, thank you, uh, Sadanand Dhume with AEI. Uh, I have a question for Kara, and it's a two-parter, but I'll keep it kind of concise. Um, the first is that if you, if the first question is that if you're looking ahead now, five years from now, you've had this successful meeting, you have a successful defense relationship, which, as you say, is really the jewel and the crown of this larger bilateral relationship. Looking ahead and taking advantage of the amount of time you've spent on this relationship. What's your best case scenario for five years from now in terms of defense cooperation? What's the most likely? And what's your it all goes to hell scenario? What do these three look like? <laughs> the second part, which is related to this, is that when you look at this process, and this is coming, coming back to something that Aparna touched upon in a different way, to what degree do you feel that the Pentagon has the ability to insulate the defense relationship from all these other moving parts, right? And you talked about trade and we talked about visas. One of the things we didn't talk about is stuff like human rights and other things which suddenly seem to have become unfashionable in this town. But you know, there are a whole lot of other things that, you know, that, that, that do affect the, the, the larger relationship. So to, to what degree uh, do you think the defense relationship, which has been kind of insulated, uh, will remain insulated? You always ask the easy questions. Um, so I'll start with the easier of the two. Um, you know, best case scenario for defense, we could be very pie in the sky. I mean, you would see, uh, look, I would say to begin with, um, we already have a fairly convergent vision for the Indo-Pacific. You can look at Prime Minister Modi's speech at Shangri-La and Secretary Mattis's speech at Shangri-La, and they used different words, but they effectively painted a picture of a region that looked very similar, a vision for the region that looked very similar, um, you know, uh, uh, where countries can operate free from coercion, where there is effective uh, rule of law, and we continue to uphold the rules-based international order, right? And, and, and looking to uh, help maintain security and prosperity and stability in the region. So best case scenario I would see is um, increasing interoperability of the US Armed Forces. So that means exercising together, but operating together in areas where it makes sense. If there is you know, the next hurricane, earthquake, disaster in the region, um, such as we had with Nepal in 2015, you don't see India and the US both showing up separately. You see a coordinated effort ahead of time to make sure that we are um, responding in a coordinated fashion, each bringing to bear you know, the resources um, that, that you know, favor our strengths. Um, you see perhaps more conversation about how to plan for that in terms of um, military engagements. You see uh, more 
collaboration with other like-minded countries in the region, whether it's through the Quad format or through other mini-lateral formats, whether it's with U.S.-India-Sri Lanka doing some maritime domain awareness activities together, uh, U.S.-India-Indonesia-Australia uh, uh, doing some maritime domain awareness activities together or responding to a disaster, something of that sort where you see, but you see it becoming routine. I think that's, you know, best case scenarios where it's not even a question, it's not debated in Delhi or Washington, it just happens because we're already sort of like-minded and we would respond the way we would uh, right now, frankly, with any U.S. ally in the region. Um, more likely is we see, um, we maybe see some of that happening, but it is still debated and discussed. <laughs> I think that's probably more likely. Um, and I don't want to imagine the worst case scenario. Uh, come on. <laughs> I have built my career on being very positive about this relationship. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I've been right so far. So, um, but you no, know, and that is because we've been able to insulate. So I guess worst case scenario would be if we're, we fail to insulate ourselves from other bumps in the relationship. And they are frequent and many. Um, and we've been able to preserve that and protect that thus far because it's been in both countries' interests to keep the defense relationship working. And, and I frankly see that continuing. Um, in the United States, we've been fairly effective at um, continuing. I think the challenge would be, as you said, if human rights come to the fore, if there's sort of congressional interest, um, that can always put a break on defense activity. Um, and in India, though, I think as long as there's interest in plugging along, that's what you'll see. I think you've worked on India a long time because you are, you're, I mean, I would have said, you know, for best case, why not Bika? Why not sign the third agreement? Sort of, you know, get all of them. So I take, I, that, for <laughs> I take that for granted. And I think that shows you somebody who's, I see these as very, they have taken on outsized importance in the media. You know, the New Delhi chattering classes, it's all about whether we're going to be signing these agreements and are we signing our sovereignty away. In the United States, these agreements are signed by one star generals, which in our system is not very. <laughs> no offense to anyone, Star um, it's, it's a pretty pedestrian agreement that's very pro forma. It just allows you to do things. Well, the, just for uh, context, the logistics support agreement that took us over a decade to sign, we have with 88 countries. I, I right. negotiated that in 2006 there you go. with the current DCM at the Indian Embassy. But <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we, we were sort of, it's taken on outside support. So I, I assume those things happen as a matter of course. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Don Kirk. I spent some, some time in, sort of in that region. I'm just wondering uh, to what extent is all this, and this is just a follow-up, all this dependent upon our concern about BAR and uh, Guador and port construction in Sri Lanka and Myanmar and so forth. Uh, there seems to be, you know, as our concern about that goes up, so does our good, good feeling about India go up. Uh, is that a, 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 extremely simplistic, or would you care to enlarge on that view, or can contradict that view? Well, I I, th I just think it's tough to draw a sweeping conclusion because BRI is so, is relatively new. I mean, it's really only been the last five years that it's even been in existence, and really only the last two or three that we've come to understand its real scope and ambitions, and this U.S. India. Uh, partnership has been building now for well over a decade. So there's a lot more to it and a lot more underpinning it than certainly the BRI, but even common concerns over China. 
although I do think that that is uh, one of the motivating factors in the relationship. I just don't think it's um, an exclusive uh, factor or that the BRI is, is specifically driving our cooperation. It is pushing us to talk more about cooperation and infrastructure development abroad. We've formed a working group on that subject. The administration is looking at ways to become more involved in the game by offering uh, insurance and subsidies to company, U.S. companies that may be interested in doing infrastructure abroad. How can we amplify the efforts of the Japanese on this front? How can we promote transparent infrastructure with accountability that doesn't cause debt traps across the region? So that's become yet another sort of binding agent for the two countries. But I don't think you can put it at, at the core or say that if concerns about BRI somehow went away, the U.S.-India relationship would lose its momentum. I, I don't think that's the case. Anybody else wants to? You know, uh, when uh, I was working on the C U.S.-India CEO forum, uh, one of the things that I had suggested and pushed upon was to get more U.S. And, and Indian companies to work together where we saw Chinese companies making inroads, mainly in Africa, and why not work jointly on innovative projects, whether it's on water, manufacturing, scaling up uh, manufacturing, local manufacturing, and working together to be that alternative. Because in many of these countries, there is no alternative because the Chinese bring so much money into those projects. Um, and we just never were able to take that off. Maybe that's an opportunity now where the private sector between the two countries can work together in, in different places to promote more economic activity and to strengthen the local economies and provide what Secretary Pompeo said was an alternative, and a, and a democratic and more positive alternative. My name is Radhika from Fiki. Um, I just want to add something to what Aparna asked about what are the list of things the Indian companies can demand from the US. Um, the list is pretty long, but if I have to just give you like two or three big points, I would say it's it's more about the perception than, um, and I agree with Kapil that we need to talk more about it. So for example, this whole review on GSP or filing case at the WTO for India's import um, um, uh, subsidies or solar panels or this whole perception about intellectual property in India. So it, things like these probably need to be spoken more by champions like Kapil. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Will? <laughs> Good afternoon. I am Kim Hyun-sook. I am intern at Heritage Foundation. I work under Jeff. My question to Dr. Aparna Pandey. Uh, since the question of the common ground for cooperation between the United States and India came up, um, India has been refusing any kind of foreign aid in the section of disaster relief since the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. And we saw a disaster happen in the state of Kerala last month, killing hundreds and displacing thousands. Um, do you see any kind of cooperation in this area? Because the United States has a strong standing Navy in the area, and I see this as a good chance of cooperation. Um, thank you. Um, the Indian government's policy is founded on the belief that 
um, India has enough resources and India will be able to deal with disasters, whether they are within India or in the region. Um, it does not mean that India will not, I mean, that, that um, you cannot provide aid to, uh, to non-government organizations. You can do that. The government will not directly take uh, aid, but aid can be provided uh, by individuals, by private sector to uh, non-governmental organizations. India hasn't stopped that. The only, what it has stopped and avoided and has avoided for the last decade or so is direct assistance from government to governments, ex with some exceptions. Uh, because it believes it has the resources. Now, uh, you may disagree with that, um, but uh, that is the Indian government's uh, policy, and the, the, the belief is that we, we can take care of our uh, problems. Um, but you are welcome to provide assistance to non-governmental organizations in that area. So in Kerala, non-governmental organizations can accept assistance. Uh, that has not been stopped by the Indian government. Yeah, sure. Fun fact. Please. Fun fact, the U.S. and India signed a disaster response initiative in 2005. Shortly thereafter, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, and the United States accepted one cargo mm -hmm. plane load of assistance from India. The U.S. Has accepted, Japan accepted um, assistance. Um, I will stop there. <laughs> um, the lady, yeah. My question is more for Kara. This is Zenobia Pantiki. I'm a consultant with the World Bank. Um, although India and US have now got the strategic defense partnership going, uh, what if the strategies are divergent at some point or that um, strategic partnerships of the past come into play? Will the US stand by this new agreement? Because that could shake the rock bottom of the agreement if it doesn't. I believe I understand what you are alluding to. <laughs> um, so I think the strategic partnership, the foundations of it really are, uh, and it, it sounds trite because it's something US government officials repeat frequently, but it's true. It is very much founded in shared principles and values and shared interests. And as long as, so you've got values and principles that undergird a desire to cooperate more closely. And that spans the entire partnership from economics, trade, you know, defense, security. You have seen a deepening of the security partnership because the security interests are increasingly aligned. And that does have a lot to do with the rise of China, um, absolutely. Um, but it also has to do with concerns over terrorist activity in South Asia. And I think you're seeing very convergent views on the challenges um, that are being posed in South Asia and, and the causes of some of those challenges. So, um, so I think as, so interests very much drive progression in this relationship. And they will, I think, be, you know, you'll see progress calibrated based on what those interests continue to be shared. Um, I am of the opinion that they will continue to be shared. Uh, I, you know, I, I sort of, if you sort of look out, try to do a long-term view of what security dynamics are in the region, I think you have every reason to believe the US and India will continue um, to be moving in the same direction. And you know, the challenge of any relationship, and this is true of our treaty allies as well, is if differences emerge, you've got to work through them. And, and, and we've shown that that's possible. Um, right next to it, Edie. Um, thank you. Jonathan Ward, Atlas Organization. Uh, 
Um, so I have a question about the China factor um, from a different angle. I mean, Jeff, you mentioned it's a motivating factor, etc. But what about China as a disruptive factor in the U.S.-India relationship? I mean, since the 1950s, they've been really deeply afraid of the coming together of um, the U.S. and India. And it seems that at present they have a relatively clear idea of what they can do and what their assessment is of how close it can get. They seem relatively confident um, about the limitations of this relationship, um, not, I think, for good reasons. But um, that being said, I mean, what kind of factor will China actually be as they continue to be very concerned about this? And, um, you know, how, how can you know, we sort of push back on that. And finally, like, have we properly assessed the Wuhan summit? I think there's more to it than than people have gotten out of it. Thank you. Can I also just add one extra? And where does the EU play in all of this? Well, if China is trying to peel India away from the U.S., it's doing a pretty awful job at it. <laughs> there is quite a bit of low-hanging fruit that would be there for China to pluck if it were really interested in putting the past behind them or was seemed really concerned about uh, India's proximity to the U.S. and Japan, that it is either proving incapable of, of doing or, or unwilling to. It's obviously hard to sort of read the tea leaves in Beijing on some of these big ticket items, but I don't know that I believe the propaganda that says it doesn't matter to us what India is doing. It doesn't matter if India is moving closer to the US or Japan. That's been a part of the narrative for a long time to publicly downplay the significance of India and its role on a global stage, to consider it as more of a regional power on par with Pakistan and a rivalry with Pakistan, rather than giving it that recognition. But I think, you know, real strategists in, in, in China are cognizant of the significance of this over the long term. What does this mean 10, 20, 30 years down the road that the US, India, and Japan are increasingly uh, coming together on, on shared challenges posed by China? But they're unwilling to take any of the steps I think that would be necessary to sort of put some of these historical grievances behind the two, including the border dispute. They've just largely stonewalled most efforts at making meaningful progress on the border dispute. And they may hold on to that position for another few decades until they feel confident in their position in Tibet. Uh, short of a border agreement, you know, the distrust that's been sown by China's relationship with Pakistan and by not even these some of these legacy issues, like the border dispute, by new areas of friction, China's presence in South Asia and in the Indian Ocean has become a significant new fault line. What it's doing in Sri Lanka, in Nepal, uh, in Bhutan, in the Maldives. Uh, there are new layers of friction being added to the relationship, not taken away. Though there is an interest on both sides to continue to manage the relationship, which is what I think you saw at, at the Wuhan summit. They recognize that in this ebb of flow of China-India relations, they were reaching a, a kind of a dangerous point with the Doklam crisis, and there was an effort to bring it back to a more manageable state. But the broad trajectory continues in the same direction. Anybody else? Just to slightly add to that, I mean, I, I, we've seen over the course of the past 15 years both some very significant security as well as trade differences between India and China. But in the multilateral context, you actually have seen them partnering together. So uh, uh, building a new multilateral forum, the BRICS, this really has been built out of nothing. 
uh, building in the context of the BRICS, the new development bank, uh, partnering together on the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, in which India is the number two capital contributor and the number one recipient of infrastructure uh, investment. So you, you know, becoming a member of the SCO, both uh, India and Pakistan are now SCO members. It's another context, a multilateral context, in which India and China and other partners, notably not the United States, are working together on security issues. So I, I do think it's a little bit more complicated than uh, many might think. Uh, it is not purely a story of geopolitical competition. It is also a story, actually, of trade competition. India is, is very displeased with its trade deficit with China and the composition of that trade. India has, uh, you know, going back to what the uh, uh, a joint trade strategy review of India-China trade in, what, 2005? Even then, um, you saw Indian officials saying, wait, we have a real problem here with what flows out of our country, kind of raw materials, and are, are importing back in finished goods, and this is detrimental to our own economy. Um, these have been points of, of concern all along, and I don't see that yet being resolved either. Uh, but in the multilateral context, you do see areas where they do plug in with each other and have some similar shared goals on the world stage, particularly the idea that uh, global governance needs reform to better accommodate the rise of new major powers in the world system. But, but do you guys worry about the EU? And you know, the BRI goes right to Germany. And uh, what role will the EU play in all of this? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, as far as I know, no EU country has yet signed a formal MOU with China on the BRI. After taking really a wait and see approach and offering some positive signals in the first few years, uh, over the last year, you've seen some pretty significant criticism from the leaders of France and, and even Britain and Germany. The German foreign minister gave a tirade against the BRI. It was there to divide Europe. Uh, that China's rewriting the rules of the game and we're going to wake up and have, you know, be living in a different house and we're not going to like what we see. That I think there's some concern that China, through strategic investments, is picking off some countries and preventing EU consensus on things like tighter restrictions on foreign investment or even human rights issues. Um, so I think Europe uh, is in some ways uh, joining, sharing some of the concerns about the BRI that India and the U.S. have, and beginning to have some of those discussions on how do we, how do we try and promote a model that is more transparent, more accountable, uh, respects the sovereignty and independence of the countries uh, where we're operating. So I, I see Europe as playing a helpful role on on the question of the BRI uh, potentially. They're they're in the middle of a fairly vigorous debate about this right now. Um, Richard. Richard White's Hudson Institute, a related question. To what extent is India willing to sacrifice its relationship with Russia to improve relations with the United States? Mm. Um, I think uh, to date, well, look, um, I think we also have to look at what is the state of your, what are the state of U.S. India, sorry, India-Russia relations today, and it is a far cry from where they were during the Cold War, and you had close India-Soviet ties. Uh, there are continue to be legacy defense systems in the inventory that need to be maintained and supplied. Um, there's certainly the optics of high-level dialogue, Prime Minister Modi meeting with President Putin quite regularly, 
um, regular cabinet level dialogues in Russia, but if we look at the substance, the substance right now is primarily defense trade. India does not need a Russian vote in the UN any longer. India has come into its own. <laughs> and so I, I think you see a veneer of what once was. And so I, I, I don't see India having had to give up much in terms of its ties with Russia to deepen its ties with the United States. I do see, however, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of defense trade, India will be faced with some stark choices as it looks to um, you know, obtain more sophisticated defense equipment from the United States. And, and, and uh, the S-400 is an interesting test case of this. <laughs> Anybody else wants to add to it? Okay. Um, the, I'll take three questions in the end, um, right here, and then two here. I'm concerned about Pakistan and Afghanistan, and whether there's any relationship in this discussion about trade with those and the effect on security. Just keep it brief. Um, let's take all three. Good. Yeah. Hi, Roger Murray with the Alliance for Fair Trade with India. Um, another another China question. Uh, so certainly they've uh, helped evolve our strategic goals together in the last several years, um, where they've brought to four shared strategic. Uh, principles, um, and I think the same is possible on, on the trade front, but it's going to take a little while. Um, I think a, w one really present example of this is in The Economist this week on China's uh, rapid development of its pharmaceutical industry, uh, where they're approving patents faster, uh, they're um, kind of, they're culling some fat in their pharmaceutical industry, uh, and to me this is a, a big challenge to India's uh, export engine. Um, so I, I guess the question is, uh, are you hearing concerns about this in Delhi? Um, and is and, and are those concerns kind of helping dry out conversations about how the US and India can have more shared trade principles, such as parity and market access? My name is Satoru Nagao, the Hudson Institute. I'm Japanese. So my question is very basic uh, for the Jeff Smith. What is the Prime Minister Modi's role to promote U.S.-India relations. Let the panel choose the question they want to answer. I'll, I'll try to take a stab at the first one. By trade with Pakistan and Afghanistan, did you mean Indian trade with Pakistan and Afghanistan? Is that what you meant? I'm, I'm struggling to, to clarify my question, to be honest with you. But it seems to me the hot button issue in South Asia in terms of security is, in fact, Pakistan, India. Pakistan is going to be really upset about this. Um, and about what? Ab about, about the discussion, the increase, our increasing closeness with India. Um, and uh, we'll be pushed more toward China, is very concerned about Indian interference in Afghanistan. I mean, is, there, is there any? Is there any way in which discussion about trade is conducted with an eye to the, the importance of the security relationships within South Asia? I think I'm operating with a little bit different set of assumptions than your question offers. So let me try to answer that uh, the way I see this, and others may have a different perspective. But certainly uh, when I have been part of or have heard people uh, posing the question of how trade can be a bridge to some of the security challenges in the region. It's actually been on um, the question of how to try to unlock 
this big barrier to trade that exists in South Asia. The World Bank has done studies over the years on the problem of intra-regional trade within South Asia. And this region of the world actually has extremely limited intra-regional trade. It may be the region of the world with the most limited internal trade. And the problem there is that there really is no trade across this India-Pakistan divide. Now, over the course of years, in 1996, India granted Pakistan um, what's referred to as most favored nation status under WTO rules. And Pakistan has not reciprocated that to India. During 2011 and 2012, there was a real groundswell among civil society, business groups, and politicians in Pakistan to try to get this trade with India moving, because it would be beneficial to Pakistan's economy and Pakistan's prosperity. So you saw what seemed extremely promising. There were uh, the commercial groups, uh, in fact, FICI, which Ridhika represents here in the United States, was very, very active with counterparts in Pakistan to try to create roadshows in Delhi and in Lahore and in Mumbai and in Karachi that would bring companies from either country to try to talk to the other side about what they could gain from enhanced trade. Things got very close in Pakistan to actually passing a reciprocal recognition of this most favored nation. It was actually caught up in the, what to call it because people in Pakistan didn't want to call this most favored nation, so they called it non-discriminatory market access. Fine, if it has the same result. And this actually passed in their National Assembly, and then it kind of just went away. So that's where things are right now. In 2015, it looked like that might be picked up again. And it just has kind of gone away. I don't see any signs that the new Imran Khan government may pick this up. If they suddenly decide to, that would actually be great. It could be a strategic breakthrough for the region, for Pakistan's economy, for India-Pakistan ties, and for better linking Afghanistan to the most dynamic, largest economy in the region by opening up what has been a real closed door within the region and giving Afghanistan's entrepreneurs access to this enormous Indian domestic market. So, so that is the context that I hear and what could conceivably be a very, very promising pathway to a very, very difficult security challenge. But as of right now, we've seen very little movement on this so far. I'll, I'll answer the third question about the fair trade and, and values. You know, there I, I see a ton of articles talking about IP protection and the Chinese strategy of of, of hitting certain uh, economic gains by 2025, and a lot of that is by taking or extracting IP. I don't see that about India, and I don't see that about Indian companies. And and if I see the maturation of Indian companies. Um, they're now getting into product development, and IP is becoming more and more important to Indian companies. And when you see the collaboration, in not only just in Mountain View and Silicon Valley, but other parts, you're seeing Indian and US companies co-creating. I really don't see that with American and Chinese companies. And so I think over the long run, I'm, we will see more and more collaboration between U.S. and Indian companies. You will see, I personally believe, stronger IP protection coming out of India, uh, just because the domestic market is demanding it. Um, as Indian companies are becoming more global, they need IP protection in India. I've been amazed by the number of patent filings Wipro has been filing over the last 18 months. It's been going, about, going up two to 300% every year, and we're not the only ones. So there's a lot of other Indian-based companies that are doing the same thing. 
Um, and the collaborations are is what gives me hope. You know, you could talk to Gargi Ridhika about it, but the, the amount of U.S.-India collaboration on innovation is staggering. I don't get that excited. I don't hear that excitement about U.S.-Chinese collaboration. So that's where I have hope or on the long run, that that's what's going to be the bond between the two. I think the last question was about the, was it the role of Prime Minister Modi in U.S.-India relations? Uh, I mean, the, the role is, is significant, very significant. The Prime Minister's office has tremendous responsibility for foreign policy. Um, if we go back five years, it's kind of quickly forgotten now, but if you go back to 2013, I was up on Capitol Hill saying, this man could be nominated as Prime Minister and he's not even allowed in the U.S. There's effectively a visa ban on Prime Minister Modi. Uh, now Prime Minister Modi, we, you need to do something to lift this ban before he's nominated and elected, or there's going to be a dear price to pay. We really don't know where he stands on the U.S. He's, he's clearly not favorably inclined over this visa issue, and I was wrong. They didn't remove the visa ban until afterward, but he said on the campaign that the two countries were natural allies, and that's a very loaded term in India, the alliance word. And he's proved, I, I think, anyone you ask, he has exceeded expectations in the warmth he has shown toward the U.S. and in the focus and attention he has put on building the U.S.-India relationship. A part of that is the cabinet he surrounded himself with and the ministers he surrounded himself with um, who, have, who have done a lot of great work on the ground. But I think his, his role has been very significant if, to directly answer your question. I think it's exceeded expectations. I would offer a, a slightly different take. I think the role of prime minister full stop continues to be important in making sure the Indian bureaucracy prioritizes relations with the United States. <coughs> At the people-to-people -people level, and I think some of the business relationships level, those happen naturally. But when we're talking about pursuing closer defense relationships where you've got to put building blocks in place in terms of overcoming some of the trade barriers, that requires executive, you know, national government level attention. And that only happens if the prime minister, or in, in our case, the White House, makes clear that that's a priority and makes sure that the bureaucracy is following suit and implementing that agenda. Um, and fortunately, we've seen, though, over the past three governments in India and as many governments in the United States, a commitment to doing that. Um, you know, my vision for the future would be where that's it's still a priority, but that level of pressure isn't necessary, that it happens more organically amongst the bureaucracies. We're not quite there yet. So the prime minister's attention is still very much needed um, and likely will be you know, following the elections next year. Um, but that would be my goal is to see a point where the prime minister merely says, yes, the relationship's important, and then the bureaucracies follow suit. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to thank the audience and the panel. Thank you so much. Thank you.